0: Welcome to The Invisible Hand. I'm your host, Dominique Sherub, and I'll be joined each month by Paul Scanlon to look under the hood of the Australian economy. Welcome, Paul.
1: Great to be here, Dom.
0: Today is our first episode, and because of this, we wanted to provide a bit of an explanation of how we arrived here. When he first published his major work, The Wealth of Nations, in 1776, it's unlikely that Adam Smith could have ever imagined the sort of world that we would live in today, and yet his thinking around how economies work endures. It was Adam who came up with the idea of the invisible hand of the market. The main idea here is that people pursuing their own interests in the market will have positive outcomes for society. Why? Well, the interplay of individual pressures on market supply and demand causes a natural movement of prices and consequent flow of trade. So what are we doing here at the invisible hand that you won't get elsewhere? We're trying to uncover the invisible hand, really, to check if it's real, and each month we'll cover three topics, what's in the news, the hand, and what's invisible. Welcome, Paul. I hope you're excited for our first episode.
1: Thanks, Tom. I'm really excited to be here and super excited for our passion project, this podcast, to be finally off the ground. Amazing. Uh, This is our episode number one, hopefully one of many. Uh, Certainly after we've laid down our 100th episode, I hope we're doing better than we are today, but (laughs) a journey starts with the first step and here we are.
0: Here we are. So
1: I'm very happy to get into it with you.
0: Awesome. So starting from the top with what's in the news. So what is in the news? Well, I would say inflation is on the top of the tongues of most people in the country. We've all experienced it, the rapid rise in prices, whether for basic goods such as yogurt or large purchases such as property. Indeed, inflation hit a two-decade high when it reached 7.8% over 2022 to December. Uh, The RBA has been on the defence trying to stave off any further increases by introducing 12 uh, rate hikes over the past year and a half, but we we did have a pause in July. So um, the most recent data shows inflation has dropped to 7%. Paul, what's your take on this? What is inflation and why is it so bad?
1: What is inflation? I feel like we're back in Economics 101, Dog, Well done. Too true. So, inflation uh, is basically a rise in prices. Uh, in particular, in Australia, we measure the rise in prices by the Consumer Price Index, the CPI. The CPI is a measure of the change in the price of a basket of goods, a theoretical basket of goods of the things that you and I would buy and consume on a daily basis. It includes things like housing, food, alcohol, recreation, and cultural activities transport household goods health insurance and so on all the sort of things that you'd expect a normal household to be buying in the proportions that they buy it so these prices are measured uh, weighed and then we work out an overall average um, cost of goods and services increase in an economy and what that in fact might be on families
0: cool so why would you say it's um bad why are we talking about it so much
1: Yes, it's a good question, Dom. I mean, lots of people view inflation as being bad and it can be bad where it gets too high. Uh, certainly where uh, the cost of goods or services increases too much in, a co- in an economy, then the money that you had yesterday to pay for the things today will now buy less. So if, if a price of, uh, the price of a litre of milk was a dolly a couple of years ago and you're now paying $2 for that litre of milk, you're now able to only buy half as much milk with the same amount of money, um, but that's not to say it's all bad. I mean, we have a target band in uh, almost all economies around the world for a certain amount of inflation. Growth is helpful. Um, we do want asset prices to go up. We, everyone wants a pay increase. Uh, we do want our bank balances to go up. Uh, we do want growth in, in economies. Uh, growth in economies is the way in which uh, innovation is rewarded and people get ahead, um, but not too much. And that target range is the target range that the RBA has in Australia, which is the 2 to 3% range which is what's considered to be a healthy rate of inflation.
0: Right. So why is the RBA so keen on the topic? So right now we're at 7%. You've just mentioned they need to come down to 2 What's What's keeping them focused on this?
1: Well, to understand what the RBA is doing today, it's necessary to understand where the RBA has come from. And uh, the RBA has a history and a charter and a focus Um, It's actually an independent organisation, it's not the government, Uh, it's deliberately independent from the government so that interest rate settings are not affected by the um, regular political cycle in Australia. It's it's given to what are so-called experts uh, to make independent decisions around what's best for monetary policy in our economy. The RBA was actually founded in 1959 uh, with a remit to be our central bank and to control the price of uh, money in Australia which is interest rates. The RBA has a charter, and so I'll I'll read from that charter uh, what its purpose is. It is the duty of the Reserve Bank Board within its limits and powers to ensure that the monetary and banking policy of the bank is directed to the greatest advantage of the people of Australia. What that means, and is understood to be, is three things. The stability of the currency of Australia, the maintenance of full employment in Australia, and the economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia. Some big objectives, uh, but how do we understand
0: this in practice? Or so how uh, do they understand it in practice?
1: Yeah, so that's where this target range of two to three percent inflation comes in. If, if the inflation rate is kept within that two to three percent range, um, then it is considered that those other three objectives will be met. And more specifically, there's a focus on the Nairu.
0: What is the Nairu, dear Scanlon? <laughs> I
1: was waiting for you to ask. <laughs> Uh, So, the NIRU is the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, uh, which basically means the rate of unemployment in an economy which won't cause inflation. And by this, we can understand the fact that there will always be some level of unemployment. Um, People will be between jobs or some people will choose not to work. Some people will uh, be carers at home or sick or uh, for all of the various reasons that people uh, choose to be either unemployed or underemployed, uh, there is always uh, an, an unemployment rate greater than zero. The challenge uh, with unemployment is that it, it can be too high or too low. Uh, if it's too high, then we have uh, not enough people uh, in the economy, in work, getting wages and buying goods and services. So we struggle for an economy to work well in that sense, uh, in that there won't be demand for goods and services. And with that demand, prices go down. And that's... Uh, inflation will be too low if infl- unemployment is too high. The other uh, end of the spectrum, which is a little bit um, reminiscent of what is happening now in the Australian economy, if unemployment is too low, then there's not enough people to go and fill um, jobs. And so employers will be forced to bid for labor and offer higher prices. Those that are in jobs will ask for higher prices for their um, salary. And so those increased cost of wages will flow through into increased cost of goods and services, uh, which uh, feeds into inflation. So, the target for the, uh, the RBA is to find that Goldilocks scenario of the right level of unemployment in an economy, the Australian economy, uh, which is going to keep inflation in the
0: range of 2 to 3%. So, I, I just wanted to say that Marx would probably call this Nairu, uh, the Reserve Army of Labor. If um, go back, Going back to my political economy roots...
1: I think you're giving away your um,
0: my <laughs> your
1: political economy <laughs> persuasion, there, Dom. Well done.
0: <laughs> um, so, in the case of Australia, and at the moment, uh, there are people are saying different things about what's actually causing the current rate of inflation. So, you've just given us a bit of an explanation of the possible contributors. What What are you thinking? Is Is this a price a wage price spiral? Is this a profit spiral that we're seeing?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, and there's lots of views uh, on this topic. Uh, in the press at the moment, uh, particularly, and kind of sadly what we're seeing is that lots of employer groups are suggesting this might be a uh, wage price spiral, so inflation caused by wage increases, and of course lots of trade union movements are suggesting it's a profit price spiral, so um, uh, inflation being caused by increased profit demands of uh, businesses. The difference is uh, that a a wage price spiral is one where prices go up because wages are going up. The spiral starts with wages and then prices, uh, price increases follow and that's the spiral. Uh, The alternative, the profit spiral, is one where um, costs uh, could be the same but businesses are seeking higher profits uh, and that increases the cost of goods and services and so that's the thing that creates inflation. Um, The difficulty uh, is that um, often people suggest there's one or the other. Sometimes it's a bit of both, and sometimes it's neither.
0: And so, what, what do you what do you suggest in the case of Australia? What are we seeing?
1: That's a complicated question as well. And uh, what we are seeing uh, is a difference in different pockets of the economy. So um, both sides of the equation are kind of right, is what what they mean. So certainly in uh, goods prices in Australia, we have seen. Goods prices increase in prices faster than services for some time now. Uh, That has been driven uh, by both a cost of inputs, which is largely imported in Australia, as well as um, the the mining sector particularly, an increase in profits in Australia. And so, that has driven inflation to start with. Uh, But more recently, we've seen services inflation take off faster than the rate of goods inflation, And so, services inflation, of course, is more driven by wages. And so, it's been a a partly wage-driven spiral for that part of the economy. The goods um, part of the economy is also affected by our currency movement, and our Australian dollar has been relatively stable, and uh, lots of supply chains have started to become unblocked around the world. Uh, And so, that has helped bring down the rate of goods inflation. Uh, It's now left to task for the RBA and others to do the job, which is to decrease Uh, the services inflation which generally speaking um, looks like trying to increase the rate of unemployment
0: okay so considering that considering that there are multiple contributing factors to inflation and uh, the rba only has one instrument effectively monetary policy are there alternative ways that um, inflation could be attacked
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, the RBA has uh, a great instrument in interest rates. It's their only instrument, effectively, uh, to um, affect inflation and and achieve their objective. Um, And that's what they've been doing. They've been, uh, obviously, we've had an unprecedented uh, increase in interest rates uh, since May last year, and uh, that is working. So they have arrested the rate of inflation that's coming down. Uh, So they're doing their job. It's cost Dr. Lowe his job, unfortunately. Uh, and that's really looking like it's not about making the wrong decisions, more about the method of communication, sadly. Um, that might have um, cut his tenure short. Uh, but we've got a new governor in Michelle Bullock, and she's very unlikely to do anything different. I mean, the rate of inflation, both goods and services-based, is well beyond the targeted range of 2 to 3%, so rates will stay high and increase. It's certainly our prediction here on the Invisible Hand podcast that there'll be at least two more rate- rises of uh, 25 basis points each, and we've certainly been advocating uh, in our writing for some time that rates would rise, and uh, we've been predicting a rise uh, higher than most economists out there, and um, that is playing out sadly at the moment. But it's not the only thing. The other big uh, contributor to policymaking and economic outlooks in Australia is the government, and the government has many options at its disposal that uh, could affect inflation Um, those you know could be things like um, encouraging investments in infrastructure which could uh, make businesses and parts of the economy more productive Uh, it could also include things like encouraging the disbursement of labor to move to the places where the demand for labor is and helping people move efficiently that would uh, help unblock the price wage spiral that, uh, that is occurring at the moment um, so there's lots of things that the federal government can do. What it, uh, it can, of course, do, which it's doing right now, is to run budget surpluses. Uh, a budget surplus uh, is helpful in an inflationary environment because it's the federal government taking money out of the Australian economy. By taking money out, it's taking demand out of the Australian economy, and taking demand out helps to reduce the demand for goods and services and therefore bring inflation down. It's exactly what the, the Australian uh, federal labour government is doing right now. Um, the opposite is possible. So in different times, federal governments would run uh, deficits, which is where they spend more than they have, and that pumps money and therefore demand into the economy to try and help boost economic activity and creates demand for goods and services and therefore inflation. So beyond uh, what the RBA is doing and must do and will keep doing, uh, the next range of uh, jobs that could really be helpful is with the Australian government. And if we could be controversial for a moment, uh, many of those examples I gave before are real and lasting, genuine impacts that a federal government could make uh, on inflation. Uh, Things like helping people pay power bills for one quarter is doing nothing.
0: I love when you bring the controversy, Mr. Scanlon. Thank you very much. My last question for you, Mr. Scanlon, just on this topic is uh, where is inflation going now?
1: You're asking me for predictions, Dong. I am. I love it. We're recorded here, so we're going to be held accountable. Um, So we've certainly been um, predicting uh, inflation uh, would be higher for longer and interest rates would therefore be higher for longer in response. Uh, That's playing out as we see now. We've certainly seen some stickiness in inflation. Inflation is fortunately coming down from 7.8 to 7, as you said. Uh, What we're predicting here is that The stubbornness or stickiness of that reduction in inflation back down to the target range of two to three percent will take longer than expected and not be a straight line. So it's pretty easy in theory to think that if we put interest rates up in a straight line, that inflation and interest rates, well, sorry, inflation will come down in a straight line. That's not really how it works. And as you've seen, the difference between goods-based inflation and services-based inflation, uh, they all happen at different cycles. Uh, Our currency movements matter. Uh, the deficit or surplus position of our federal government matters. So, all these things come to play at different points in time, fortunately or unfortunately. Um, so, our RBA has a tricky job for the next uh, one to two years while they try and target uh, that 2 to 3% band of inflation. What I think that means is that we'll be seeing interest rates go up further from here, uh, that we would expect to see them stay uh, elevated well into the 2024 calendar year, uh, that – We will see a really slow rate of overall reduction, both goods and services, um, measured inflation over the course of 2024. And so we're going to be well into 2025 before we start to see any material uh, reduction of interest rates back to where we kind of got used to them to be. Um, So it's going to be a pretty tricky ride for the Australian economy over the next year to 18 months.
0: That does not sound like the news that all mortgage, <laughs> mortgage holders in Australia want to hear, but thank you for your honesty, Paul. On to our next segment, the hand, uh, which is the big picture or what people think is pushing the economy currently. So something that's discussed a lot, I would say, is the property market, which apparently is still very much alive, even though we've had all of these rate increases, So CoreLogic has been reporting that days on the market have decreased and vendors are actually giving less discounts at the same time sales are on par with what was observed in uh, last year. With so many consecutive rate rises, economists would usually predict a major surge in forced sales, but this is yet to show in the data Domain has just started reporting in an uptick in for sales in out of Sydney, but still nothing major at just 2.8% of national listings compared to a record of 5.1% in 2018. So, how can we understand this? What's going on?
1: Well, we've got a few different dynamics at play in this particular cycle. It's certainly true that in the past, when interest rates have risen, we've seen a direct and reverse or opposite impact in property prices. Increased interest rates have been at least less less affordable for people to own property or buy property. It's more difficult to get loans, and so property prices have come down. Uh, The difference this time uh, has been a few things. Uh, The biggest thing, of course, uh, has been COVID. So uh, uh, prior to COVID, um, people were moving in and out of this country normally, um, freely, And, of course, uh, national borders were locked down uh, at the start of COVID in 2020. Uh, From that point, uh, we were a nation of people all all stuck in this uh, country uh, who were used to travelling the world and spending our money on um, holidays in Bali and all sorts of things. Uh, But now, of course, uh, well, at that point, um, the change became that everyone was stuck in their home. And so that started a national obsession even more than the normal obsession levels that people in Australia have around property and uh, and uh, encourage people to invest in their homes and to buy new homes. And of course, um, funding was available for banks and people did exactly that They went out and bought property. And what we saw was a um, trough to peak rise of close to 12% across all capital cities in Australia during COVID and then a drop off uh, so that our peak to trough uh, fall was around 9%. And what that uh, looked like was people reacting to being locked in the country, uh, increased demand for houses, spiking the price of houses, and then uh, as borders started to become unlocked, people changing their spending patterns and changing what they did, also in response to a change in interest rates. But what also happened during that period was two other things. The saving rate in Australia increased uh, dramatically, fourfold, and uh, so people built up. Savings buffers, which are being used to deal with the interest rate rises that are occurring right now, making the RBA's job even more difficult because their expected impact from their rate rises is not quite flowing through into inflation at the moment because people have a savings buffer by which they're meeting those rate rises at the moment. Um, But really under the hood, the big impact here is that um, while we went through this COVID experience Um, borders were locked and uh, we are a nation of migrants and our normal levels of immigration were ceased, you know, down to zero. Uh, Normally, we'd expect to have somewhere between 180,000 to 195,000 people uh, immigrate to Australia. Um, We don't have any natural rate of uh, birth increase in our population in Australia. Our rate of population increase comes from net migration. And so that uh, was taken out of the economy during uh, covid uh, whilst at the same time, it was more difficult uh, through supply chain issues for things to be built. So we genuinely had less supply of property and housing in Australia, whilst at the same time taking immigration out of the economy and had trapped everyone in the borders to go and buy new houses and fridges and TVs. <laughs> so that's what created a spike. Uh, the unwinding, of course, from that is now occurring as people can now move around, which means some people have left. Uh, but importantly, there's now a catch-up in immigration so, instead of that uh, normal rate of immigration of around 190,000 people a year, we're actually seeing more than double that um, come into Australia in this calendar year. And we're seeing and expecting those really high levels of catch-up immigration to occur for the next couple of years. Those people are coming to Australia and will need housing uh, on the back of not having produced enough housing for the last few years. And so, you've got this really interesting um, dynamic at play where interest rates has gone up. And as you had said, everyone would expect that that would have an impact on the price of housing in Australia. But we've got some supporting factors, which is the really rapid increase in the number of people wanting houses, as well as the lack of supply of houses in Australia. So, it's a bit of a train smash, is what we're seeing at the moment, is is, uh, multiple competing forces at once, uh, making it very difficult for prices to efficiently set. Uh, So, what this could look like for people is a problem in the property market when this unwinds and we return back to normal levels of inflation, so less demand for housing and supply increases to normal level of construction and interest rates start to come off again, there'll be again an unwinding of these competing forces and a pretty funky time for property prices expected in 2025 and beyond. But until... Then, uh, and whilst the supply of housing uh, remains low and the RBA only has so far it can push up interest rates, we're likely to see a, a quite a strong level of support for property prices uh, for the next 12 to 18 months.
0: I just want to pick up on something that you said, funky prices from 2025. Is this like hopeful for me as a current non-owner of a home situation?
1: I hate continuing to give you these answers that it depends, but it depends, so... um <laughs> What we know is that when markets dislocate like that, it's difficult to talk about the whole market. There'll be different impacts on different parts of the market. Uh, And so, um, you're likely to see a different impact on investor-grade housing, which is likely to come from a peak in construction uh, versus owner-occupied and higher-value housing. And also um, our larger capital cities will continue to be supported by more immigration than regional areas. So if you're looking for um, or looking at investment properties in regional areas, you are going to have outsized impacts from that funkiness of uh, the competing um, data at that point, uh, whereas you'll have more stability in owner-occupied property in large cities in Australia.
0: Thanks, Paul. Uh, Moving right along to our final segment of what's invisible, and so we're thinking here of the things that are actually pulling the strings that we're not always aware of or we're not aware of. What is invisible in the Australian economy at the moment? Well, the Australian economic story cannot be told without an understanding of our export industries. And of course, the primary one we're thinking of here is mining. Mining. Our top three exports for 2021-22 were iron ore, 33.3%, coal, 8.5%, and natural gas, 6.6%. So, just to give you an idea, the next, the next on the list was education uh, with 6%. So, that really indicates just how significant uh, the mining industry is for our export industries. In terms of iron ore, 65% of China's imports of iron ore come from Australia, uh, and $63 billion uh, of federal, state, and territory budget revenue comes from mining taxes and royalties, and that was from 2021-2022, which represented almost 12% of the government's revenue. So really, any change in the top three exports is going to have a pretty profound impact on the Australian economy. So what's happening recently is that uh, there's been a slump in in good exports. Uh, Goods exports values slumped 7% month-on-month in April um, and the main driver was actually a 10.4% month-on-month decline in iron ore exports. There was also an iron ore price slump in May uh, with a 10% month-on-month decline. Um, So with mining Having such a huge uh, role in the Australian economy and with these recent changes, uh, I'm interested to ask you, Paul, what you think's happening and what we can – what should we understand from this?
1: Well, first I'd just like to thank all of our listeners who've lasted this long into the podcast. Thanks for sticking with us on our first episode. But certainly uh, in this segment when we're talking about what's invisible, this is a fascinating topic. Um, Certainly if we understand – and they're great data – Uh, points. Thank you, Dom. Uh, If we're understanding that one third of Australian exports are in one particular sector, iron ore, and that 65% of those exports go to one country, China, uh, then we can start to recognize uh, our reliance on a particular product to a particular customer. And uh, that has all sorts of implications for how we think across many topics. And those things could include uh, economic considerations. Uh, is it sensible to have such reliance from a business perspective even on a single product to a single customer, um, right through to the size and impact uh, of that type of product being uh, the thing in which we pay for our schools and roads and hospitals, for example, uh, an extractive industry in Australia has lots of negative comment- connotations to it from an environmental point of view. Um, and sometimes uh, we can turn a blind eye to those things for for the need to um, do other things in an economy. Uh, but it also has uh, political and geopolitical uh, implications as well. We're certainly a strong partner from a defense and security point of view with the US. And there are clearly tensions between China and the US in this part of the world, um, You've only got to look at recent uh, defense um, deals that this country has done, uh, which align in a particular way, which is not consistent with our reliance on that particular product to that particular customer. So all of these things, uh, no matter what your kind of persuasion is on those particular topics, um, what's invisible, but what is real uh, is our uh, complete or massive reliance on on that particular um, transaction being iron ore exported to China. Well, what's great is that we've got an opportunity here in this uh, podcast, The Invisible Hand, uh, to explore this topic. And that's what we'd like to do over the next few episodes is to consider a deep dive into the relationship between uh, our country and uh, our key export uh, relationship partners uh, in relation to those topics. Um, It's a topic uh, which can take us down lots of different paths And I look forward to exploring many of them with you, Don.
0: Me too Thanks for that, Paul Uh, And thank you for joining us for our inaugural episode of The Invisible Hand If you like what you heard and you feel like reaching out, please do um, Send us ideas of what could be discussed in our future episodes Uh, We look forward to joining you here again at The Invisible Hand Until then, stay curious